Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning, and thank you for joining us here at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies for a conversation with former president of the Federated States of Micronesia, David Panuelo, to discuss the Chinese Communist Party's coercive tactics in the Pacific. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research here at FTD. It's Friday, December 1st, and on behalf of FTD, I'm happy to welcome you both in person and on live stream and to those listening on our podcast. I am pleased to introduce President Penuelo, who led the island nation of Micronesia from 2019 to 2023. Before leaving office, President Penuelo wrote a series of letters warning of the CCP's political warfare and malign influence targeting the FSM and the Pacific region more broadly. Today, he will discuss how his predictions have been borne out over time. Joining President Penuelo is Cleo Pascal, non-resident senior fellow here at FTD focusing on the Indo-Pacific region. She has testified often before the U.S. Congress. She regularly lectures for the U.S. military, and she's taught at defense colleges around the world. Moderating today's conversation is Craig Singleton, FTD senior fellow with over a decade of experience in national security roles focusing on East Asia. Craig previously spent more than a decade serving in a series of sen sensitive national security roles with the U.S. government. Before the panel begins, Richard Clark, visiting adjunct fellow at FDD, will deliver remarks. Richard previously served as a special assistant and press secretary to President Penuelo from 2018 to 2023. Before Richard takes the podium, just a little bit about FDD. For more than 20 years, we have operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institution exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding, never have, never will. For more on our work, please visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, we're at, at FDD. That's enough for me. Richard, the floor is yours. Thank you, John, for the introduction. Let me set the stage for this important and timely panel. But at the outset, I would wish to pay my respects to each and every one of you. In Pompei Sarawi, a place of his own creation, when there is an attempt to find the truth amongst a range of narratives and beliefs, it can be said to be nonchalic, that is, lost in the weeds, like a coconut that has fallen into the bushes surrounding the trees. What the Foundation for Defense of Democracies is intending to do today with the topic of China's Pacific coercion is to find that truth lost in the weeds by hearing from the former president of the Federated States of Micronesia. The former president, David W. Penuelo, did not enter office in May 2019 with opposition to the People's Republic of China. The president saw the PRC as a friend with whom our country could share technical and economic cooperation. When we thought of China, when we thought of PRC, we thought of their people and their culture, which we liked. And we thought of their government uh, and how much we appreciated infrastructure, like the Chuuk State Government Complex, vessels like the Hapamoha One, 
an aircraft like the Y-12. It was not a mistake then that when seeking to create a name for the relationship, the president dubbed it the FSM China Great Friendship, which stood alongside the FSM US Enduring Partnership, the FSM Japan Kazuna, and later the FSM Australia Trusted Pacific Partnership. President Panuelo's administration looked to the people of China as a friend and saw the PRC government itself as a friend. But over the course of his four years as president, Panuelo's views shifted, at first marginally, then significantly, and finally precipitously. In response to cyber attacks from foreign actors, including state actors such as the Russian Federation and the PRC, delivered through email and through flash drives themselves delivered either through diplomatic notes or the regular mail, the president developed the FSM Cybersecurity and Intelligence Bureau in September 2021. As a means of first obtaining information on the novel coronavirus in January 2020, and later as a means of identifying and countering foreign coercion and interference in the FSM, the president developed the FSM Information and Intelligence Service. PRC coercion and interference in Micronesia's context is significant and extensive to the point that a fascinating question itself is to ask, where does it even begin? Do we discuss how the PRC uh, protested to the FSM in January and February 2020 that COVID-19 was not a health threat? Or the time when the PRC insisted over the course of months that the FSM ought to approve its vaccines until finally the FSM government did approve PRC vaccines only without the president's approval. Do we discuss how the PRC worked with Micronesian officials at the embassy in Beijing to propose a free trade agreement with PRC in the Pacific region when the FSM government itself had never discussed those matters internally? Do we discuss how FSM foreign service officers were denied trainings in Hawaii and Guam on the premise that such trainings were funded by Taiwan? Do we discuss the dual-use research vessels that tracked the FSM's fiber optic cable lines and hovered around the edge of our EEZ searching for submarine travel paths? Do we discuss how at a time when the United States is strengthening Yap State's primary airport that a PRC state-owned enterprise is attempting to do the same thing in Woliai Atoll? Or do we simply begin with how President Penuelo had PRC diplomats taking photographs of his wife and his family this September, months after he left office, the latter of which the president could show you photos on his phone today. The point being that with PRC coercion and interference in Micronesia's context, the truth that's lost in the weeds isn't about whether or not coercion and interference exist. Coercion and interference are debatably the whole of the FSM-PRC relationship and its entire whole self. And as our conversation today will demonstrate, I've omitted from my remarks the examples of such coercion that are plausibly the most shocking and disheartening. By extension, then, what we're looking for isn't a coconut that fell from a tree, so as to say, there it is, I found the truth, uh, it's behind this bush, but rather to say, look at the trees themselves and notice the forest that they are in. Because the story of PRC coercion and interference in Micronesia's context is relevant to all Micronesians and all Americans. This is a Micronesia sovereignty story. This is a Taiwan story. This is a forward deployment story. This is a basic human security story. And this is a story of whether or not our rules-based international order will endure. That's why, although PRC coercion and interference is the topic of the day, foundational knowledge 
on why this ultimately matters, be it to Micronesians or to Americans, and the compact of free association that ties the people together is essential. Thankfully, our panel today consists of persons who see the forest for the trees, including my former boss and dear friend and brother, uh, President David W. Penuelo, a man who protected his country from COVID-19 with no cases in country until July 2022, a man who severed diplomatic relations with the Russian Federation following their brutal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine, a man who defended democracy in the Pacific by recognizing Fiame, the prime minister of Samoa, when no one else would, and a man who gave up everything, including his political career and his own personal safety to protect his country and his people from PRC. With my deepest respects, I yield the floor to you all, and Craig, please take it away. Richard, yeah. thank you so much for the wonderful scene setter and John for the great thank introduction. Uh, it's wonderful to have you all here today at FDD. Um, Mr. President, of course, it's a pleasure to have you on the stage you, here. And Cleo, to have Cleo in town is always a special treat for us at FDD. <laughs> Normally we are texting with her and she's all around the Pacific Islands. Uh, we're sort of trying to identify here. I think we have to air tag you the next time you go on your next trip so we know where you're at. Uh, it's, a, it's always a, a treat to find out where are you today. Um, but we're really excited about today's conversation, so let's get right to it. Um, you know, Mr. President, there is a lot of conversation today in Washington about the significant developments surrounding the, the compacts of free association renewal that are ongoing here. Mm -hmm. Can you help explain to us and folks maybe who are new to the issue, but also those who have been tracking for a long time, the importance of the compacts to the FSM, but also how the COFA renewals impact broader efforts to perhaps counter uh, Chinese malign influence in the region. All right. Well, thank you, Greg, for having me on your program, the uh, FTD. Uh, thank you, Richard, for the uh, great layout of the issues we're going to be talking about. And uh, Cleo, uh, good to see you again. Uh, and all friends around here, as I was coming in here, I've been meeting people that uh, are significant in our uh, you know, strong and touring partnership with the United States, uh, uh, Alan from Georgetown that I just saw, Ambassador Curie, and then Andrew from Heritage Foundation, many others who are here. I, I just want to begin by saying that I was invited here. Thank you to do it uh, virtually, correct? But I, I uh, found it to be useful to uh, volunteer myself to be here in, in person. And so it, was, uh, it has been productive. Uh, first night I had a good uh, conversation with Yan uh, at the Epoch Times and meeting with many friends that I've mentioned. Uh, thank you for having me on this uh, program and I'll do as best as I can to be very frank and be as insightful that I can be. Uh, compact of free association, I cannot overemphasize how important it is. It's the uh, cornerstone of uh, U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific uh, region. I need not uh, belabor it, uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the big issue is that, you know, I didn't think it was going to take the entire four years of my administration. As I was getting ready to uh, uh, become <laughs> or take the hold of office, uh, uh, Foreign Affairs was already briefing me that I might be the a person to be uh, invited by President Trump to come out to Washington, D.C., along with our uh, brothers uh, and sisters of uh, freely associated nations. Uh, and so we were here, met President Trump. I just wanted to do that uh, uh, recap of that uh, important visit. And so when we met uh, uh, Pompeo, the question he asked us was, uh, how can we help you? <laughs> and I quickly say, 
please uh, quickly uh, give the green light authorization to begin the negotiations between foreign countries. And he did by visiting the country, inviting us in the capital of Palikir and announced that big news. And so we went ahead and created the, uh, the, our negotiating arm, the JCRP. And to fast track it, uh, we signed the treaty in May and then uh, quickly I had to come in to uh, meet eye level to also uh, uh, finalize the, uh, the agreement uh, with the uh, top level funding because we were going to miss the train in terms of Biden's budget uh, done by OMB to be submitted to Congress. So we met that, that uh, uh, you know, deadline and I thank uh, everybody and friends who were involved with that. Now it's pending in Congress mm -hmm. and of course as a former uh, uh, president now, or ninth president, uh, I, I am here in my capacity to talk here, frankly, on the issues that you touched. But the importance of the comeback cannot be overemphasized enough. And I think it's a win-win investment that must be uh, addressed as uh, quickly as possible in the funding because our nation is leveraging uh, everything on the sectors of health, education of our children, a new sector of climate change. He's added to it, uh, and so uh, uh, the, the entire uh, security infrastructure of the Indo-Pacific, uh, this being the cornerstone foreign policy of U.S. in the Pacific in terms of the uh, strategic uh, uh, partnership that we have that, that has the overall impact for the Pacific. And so you can see that, and you talked about uh, Chinese influence, uh, uh, and we've just met friends recently, and. While we're doing the best efforts as we are doing right now in relation to the compact, uh, the baseline activities that are happening is already uh, too much. But imagine without the compact, without the funding of the compact uh, being approved for the uh, compact nations. Imagine uh, what uh, can be happening more. Uh, Richard uh, portrayed, when you arrive in the capital nation of uh, Pone Bay, uh, the state of Pone Bay, the capital of our nation, the first visible building you will see is the administration building housing our uh, state of Pone Bay administration office. You go to Chuk, the same thing. Uh, China has built uh, the administration building that houses the three branches of government. Uh, the uh, college, uh, biggest uh, uh, university college of our nation, the FSM COM. You see China friendship uh, uh, building. Uh, but the point is, uh, you know, I've always stressed how important it is to make United States be the reflection of our success development infrastructure in the federated states of Micronesia. But as you see now, uh, uh, China is making a bigger footprint uh, print that, uh, that is uh, more visible, uh, uh, you know, to the eyes of anyone visiting our country. Uh, but underneath all of that, I'll, I'll talk about it more, but I think I'll, I'll leave it there uh, to, uh, to continue the discussion. But that's by way of uh, my opening uh, to all of you. So thank you, Greg. Yeah, no, absolutely. Of course, the, the COFA negotiations are, that are occurring literally right now in Washington, mm -hmm. they're not exactly occurring in a vacuum. So can you share a little bit about how 
other Pacific Island nation leaders are sort of viewing these conversations. I mention that because there is a, a strong countervailing narrative from the Chinese about U.S. dysfunction and perhaps that the U.S. isn't a reliable partner. Are you hearing sort of reflections from your colleagues and former colleagues throughout the region about how these negotiations are sort of being perceived? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Greg. I think the first thing that comes to mind uh, is, you know, the first U.S. Uh, Pacific Summit, uh, which I participated with uh, uh, President Biden, the entire Pacific family was out here. I chaired the uh, uh, Pacific Island Conference of Leaders in Honolulu prior to coming here, and I advocated that the entire family of the Pacific Islands Forum be invited uh, by President Biden because only the sovereign nations were invited. And I had already foreseen that, uh, that the chairmanship of uh, PIF, or the Pacific Islands Forum next leaders meeting, which recently was held in Rarotonga, was going to be Cook Islands prime minister because we had already laid the crown for that. And imagine not having a, a well, uh, a, a Cook Islands not invited and the rest of the Pacific Islands Forum. And so when I met the Deputy Secretary of State uh, in our bilaterals, I, I really stressed the importance in the, in the, in the press conference with Governor uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of Hawaii, uh, importance of inviting the entire family. So they did quickly invited us. We did the uh, uh, U.S. Pacific uh, Partnership uh, 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 Declaration, the outcome of which uh, the various countries met with the uh, State uh, Department, uh, uh, you know, Secretary of State, uh, and also negotiated the language of that. And the U.S. did say and agreed to, uh, you know, the funding to be approved. And, and so the entire Pacific uh, countries saw the language of, of that and the intention of the U.S. Uh, and so I think it's critical that the U.S., uh, uh, you know, uh, come up with that investment in this relationship as quickly as possible because the highs are looking at this relationship and wondering uh, what's happening uh, with Washington, D.C. right now when they say, uh, you know, this is a priority. And so my message to the leadership of the United States uh, uh, today is that it is very critical that approval of this is done as, as soon as possible. I think being here, you learn that the funding might miss that uh, NDAA uh, legislation, which is a priority. And so I don't know the bureaucracy. It's too massive for me <laughs> to understand coming from a small island. But uh, uh, first time I've heard of uh, air drop, you know, whether that can happen. <laughs> these, uh, these nice, uh, uh, you know, uh, words that uh, can be done. But we have incredibly good friends in the institutions here that I've also met, and I really have the confidence that it can happen. So if it misses the uh, NDAA, maybe the, the supplemental what legislation or whatnot after that. And I thank uh, our friends uh, that I met, including the Heritage Foundation, uh, with the uh, deep connections they have uh, with the leaders on the Hill, <coughs> I believe that, that that can happen uh, because some of the scenarios are a little bit pessimistic, some are optimistic. Uh, but the bigger issue that's uh, watching this with the uh, feasting eye, I believe, is the uh, People's Republic of China. Uh, looking at the, the chaos that's happening in Washington, D.C., and it's imperative. 
that we see the comeback that's not only the security of the Federated States of Micronesia or the comeback nations, but the entire Pacific, Indo-Pacific, which is integral to uh, U.S. Uh, security and defense uh, in, in, in our uh, family of uh, nations and relationship with the Pacific Island uh, nations. No, absolutely. It's a critical time. I think everyone who's watching the region feels it. Um, and there's tremendous, I think, optimism, but also pressure to make mm -hmm. sure that the renewals go and are completed, hopefully. Fingers crossed by the end of the year. Uh, you can count on FDD support, of course, I think, in that front as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Cleo, I want to bring you into the conversation. You travel extensively throughout the region. I made a joke in the beginning of the panel, but it's very <laughs> true. Uh, we're constantly hearing on the ground atmospherics mm -hmm. from Cleo as she crisscrosses the region uh, and racks up all those sky miles, which I hope one day you treat yourself to a nice vacation <laughs> for. Um, can you provide a little sense for those here about some of the specific security challenges and perhaps vulnerabilities that you hear about from the COFA states, um, including FSM, in the face of some of these current evolving geopolitical dynamics? Sure. Uh, thank, uh, thank you to Richard Craig and President Penhall for being here. And if you want to find me, just ask the Chinese embassy. I'm sure they'll be able to. <laughs> I'll give them a call. I, yeah. I have them on speed dial. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, essentially, uh, what's happening is that the U.S. is looking at the region from a kinetic warfare perspective, right? A, a lot of the discussion you'll hear about is bases or uh, power projection, the Ronald Reagan uh, defense site, the, you know, where they test these missiles, and these are incredibly important. I mean, the, the fact that there is this base in the Marshall Islands where you can launch a missile from California to test its accuracy hitting a a location in the Marshall Islands is something that would be even hard to do in the homeland. I mean, what, what, from a kinetic perspective, what these countries have offered the U.S. in terms of um, development of uh, security is uh, unlike any other relationship. If anybody asks you what three countries are the best friends of the United States, it's Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, and Marshall Islands. Uh, that, that's what enables uh, U.S. power projection across the Pacific to the first island chain, to the second island chain, to the treaty allies of Japan. It allows them to get to Taiwan un unencumbered. As a result, uh, China wants to break the chain, wants to break that ability, that uh, east-west uh, ability to get across the Pacific. So what they're doing is working at a political warfare mm -hmm. level to try to undermine it societally, economically, and politically. Um, and you see um, uh, use of things like Chinese organized crime to uh, bring in large amounts yeah. of money to corrupt the political process and the economic process. Palau had an issue with Broken Tooth, who was leader of one of the major triads, Chinese triads. Um, the amount of just pure cash coming into these countries to buy off individuals is off the charts. But at the same time, there's a co-option of the media um, there's a um, uh, in incredible uh, amount of, of political warfare around the narrative. Like we talked about um, Angar putting in the over-the-horizon uh, radar installation. Mm -hmm. So what the, you have people on the ground in Angar saying, you know, if, do you really want to be a target? Because if we go after Taiwan, we're going to knock you out you know, half an hour beforehand so you can't see us hitting Taiwan. Sure. And uh, this is a... Uh, people in that island were bombed by the U.S. 
when they were trying to displace the Japanese. They have family memories of hiding in caves from bombings. So the Chinese on the ground saying, do you want to be a target or do you want us to put in this nice casino or a civilian airport where we can help you develop your economy mm -hmm. is a, a pretty powerful thing. So what do they need? It's actually what they need are things like lawyers to be able to, the, the Attorney General of Palau is asking for lawyers to come in and help her prosecute some of the criminal organizations that are corrupting her organizations. They need intel, which is why the setting up of this uh, information intelligence service was so important. They need to know who the bad actors are and then be able to go after them. Um, Richard uh, was being very modest, but he was involved in the setting up also of these two uh, services, which helped defend on the political warfare front. So while you're looking at the kinetic, um, the undermining from the political and economic warfare perspective is ongoing, yeah. and that needs to be countered on the ground. Yeah, I, I really appreciate bringing up the political warfare aspect because sometimes I think Chinese political warfare is confused as narrative shaping when it's increasingly focused on undermining democratic governance, right? And so it's all of these tactics that are employed in this space. And often, small investments in capability development can have this outsized impact in terms of enforcement and strengthening governance. And I think we sometimes forget uh, that the small drops of investment from the United States, its partners, can over time build up just tremendous muscle memory to counter this. I wanna, I wanna bring it back to you, Mr. President. You know, you know, Cleo lays out a pretty stark perspective on the region and where things currently stand. One narrative that we encounter here a lot in Washington, and I think it's a misnomer, is that U.S. defense rights in the freely associated states exist in, quote, perpetuity. There's this myth here, I think, in Washington. Um, that isn't true, right? And Or from your perspective, do you think that is true? And isn't, is it theoretically possible that the compacts could end if, if enough political will and force isn't sort of brought to bear on the issue. Uh, Greg, uh, thank you for bringing that up. The compact, the uh, uh, free association is a very, uh, uh, you know, fine uh, treaty, mm -hmm. I think unique one that uh, cannot be found anywhere else in the world, at least uh, as I know it. And so, as you know, the, the, the Title I is the political, uh, Title II economic, and Title III is the defense. Uh, uh, cooperation and so picking up the defense cooperation because you touched uh, the denial uh, rights uh, it is a part of the treaty as in any treaty it can be uh, shaped in any form by you know unilaterally or, or jointly through a uh, discussion but the uh, denial rights is really the the uh, essence of the strategic uh, nature of the uh, compact and mm -hmm. I think it's something that while it could be uh, changed, it's something we really don't talk about it because we know how important it is to the United States. We want it to be perpetual. I think both countries need not say it. Uh, uh, although uh, there's been attempts of uh, uh, certain members of Congress that attempted via resolution in the past uh, to try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, cancel out the, the you know, the comeback, uh, and so. Yes, it can be changed uh, depending on the, the political landscape, but uh, both U.S. and the FSM knows that that's a very uh, treasured uh, uh, provision of the compact that we don't want to uh, look at it or even uh, discuss about changing. Just as uh, immigration is important because the visa-free entry of our citizens into the U.S. is so important, 
Uh, you know, we know we're treated as a part of the homeland uh, security. That's very important. Uh, the fact that our, our uh, young men and women serve in the United States Armed Forces at the higher rate uh, per capita than any of the U.S. states speaks for itself that we, uh, we also uh, provide our uh, young men and women to be part of the uh, uh, deep sacrifice for freedom, to fight for freedom uh, that is so treasured by, by the United States. And so that's the, the mechanism of the, the treaty that's so important that makes us unique uh, with the United States and, uh, you know, with the bigger implications of the, the, the Pacific region. No, absolutely. And I think I thank you for bringing up the fact that the percentage of involvement in our armed forces is so much higher. I think that, once again, these are these are sort of lost facts sometimes here in Washington, D.C. And having served abroad, not in the military, but with the military, um, mm -hmm. it was amazing to learn about those experiences from Pacific Island nations and for other Americans who perhaps aren't as familiar with the COFA mm -hmm. to understand the sacrifice that's being made um, from these perceived far-flung islands that are such an important part of our historical legacy, particularly in the Pacific. You know, Cleo, when we say that the motto in D.C. is to hurry up and wait until the last minute, it feels very much like we are living that nightmare again right now on COFA renewal. I know you've had a chance since you've been back in town uh, to really get a sense and do what you do best, which is actually just report on the ground, the facts. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we love Clio so much. Can you give us a sense, a little bit of the current state of play, and particularly this offset issue, which I know that we're all tracking pretty closely. It's confusing and jargony, but I think it's, it's when you put it into stark perspective, the small amount of money investment once again and the outsized impact, it really hits home why we have to finish and finalize these agreements soon. Yes. So. Uh, for FSM, the, the last minute was actually September 30th. Right. Um, uh, but because there was no budget, it was included. It is a, so this is what, what's, what's being agreed now. The agreement is settled. It's closed. Everybody has signed off on it. Right. There's huge bipartisan support. Um, and it covers mm. the next 20 years of funding. So this is a big cycle. We yep. knew this, as, as the president was saying, Four years before it expired, they were starting to negotiate. Um, September 30th, it, it, it was not renewed, but the money for FSM was included in a continuing resolution, but at the old rate, not at the new negotiated rate. It was the same thing happened in the second continuing resolution. But the problem is that they have budgeted, uh, the country has budgeted based on the new amounts. Right. So um, when, the, when January 1st comes around, there's going to be a huge budget gap. Palau is in even worse shape um, for, for other reasons. The problem is that the entire amount for the three countries for 20 years is $7.1 billion. $600 million of that goes to the post office. I mean, it's that, those, those sorts of things. What uh, government is requiring, what the House um, leadership is requiring, is an offset for 2.3 billion. Mm -hmm. 2.3 billion for three countries for 20 years. So the cost of a table, pretty much, that DOD spends yeah. is what we're talking about. I here. mean, or or you know, half an F-35 per country per year. Right. Right. Um, but nobody wants to give up their 2.3 billion, and so they've been. Uh, kicking it around, as you know, this could be waived. 
Right. Um, this could come from DOD, which is one of the great beneficiaries of this agreement. It could come from state. There are a whole bunch of different places it could come from, but nobody is stepping up to the plate. That's why it wasn't included in the NDAA uh, as of now. It could, as the president said, could be airdropped. It's all ready to go. But because the offset wasn't mm -hmm. uh, found, uh, the other thing it could go into is the supplemental. But right. again, it would need an offset um, thing. And those are the two things that are likely to move before this cliff at the at the end of the year. Absolutely, it's often we are often our own worst enemy. It is watching the sausage be made is sort of frightening. Yeah. So this is just to the just to the point of I I definitely understand the point of view of fiscal conservatives. Um, but it's been estimated in congressional testimony by uh, retired U.S. Marine Colonel Grant Newsham that the, to replace the value, just from a military perspective, mm -hmm. would be about $100 billion a year right. to have the aircraft carriers there, the deployment right there. So this is a very, very good deal, even if you're just looking at that narrow perspective. Absolutely. And so, Mr. President, big picture, pulling back a little bit, as we think about Chinese malign influence in the region. Mm -hmm. It's bigger than, I think, just political warfare. It's bigger than simply countering the United States. We've talked about it a little bit, but Taiwan also features really centrally to how China views the region and its long-term reunification objectives. In your third letter that you published, and we have copies in the front, I encourage everyone to take a look, and they're available on our website as well. You know, you wrote about discussions with Taipei to move FSM closer to Taiwan. I was wondering if you could describe a little bit of that process for us here, and perhaps if you're willing, uh, a little bit about what you were hearing from Washington about whether they were maybe supportive or not about some of those conversations. Well, you know, I know that in the context of the United States, we're two sovereign nations, and each country uh, forges their foreign relations and, uh, you know, their policies uh, towards other countries. And so I know that it is a sensitive issue. issue. When our nation was uh, seeking self-determination, I was a young diplomat, so I was uh, aware of the, uh, you know, our, our nation diplomatic relations and the efforts we've uh, made over the years. And, and of course, China was one of the countries earlier in that, you know, our history, uh, who recognized our country some mm -hmm. 30 plus uh, years ago. And uh, of course, the communique that we signed was that one China policy. And I believe most countries have executed the same uh, uh, communique with, uh, with China. But over time, we know that the, the evolution of the uh, uh, geopolitics and what we know about, uh, you know, the, the Pacific Island nations. We have two of our uh, uh, freely associated states uh, nations, uh, Balao and the Marshall Islands, uh, which recognize as uh, Taiwan. And so my efforts was to be uh, more uh, uh, warmer towards uh, Taiwan in terms of exploring uh, Taiwan uh, economic and cultural office. And I, I was open to that. And so my trip to, uh, to Japan, when I uh, met uh, Prime Minister Kishida on the way back, uh, communications that were happening, I accepted uh, a meeting with the uh, Foreign Minister of Taiwan. And I know that's sensitive, but we as a sovereign nation, I believe that we determine our, our course of action and the future that we see is appropriate. And I, I met 
the, the foreign minister of Taiwan to discuss uh, that very aspect. And I know Taiwan was very uh, surprised with that move uh, that we can meet with uh, Taiwan. And so uh, some other Pacific uh, countries also uh, enjoy a economic and cultural office uh, with Taiwan. And I think that was the first move that I was uh, uh, indicating mm -hmm. uh, to open up uh, uh, and warmly uh, engage uh, Taiwan in that respect. Uh, because our relationship with, uh, with China, uh, you know it's also an economic and technical cooperation. Uh, uh, it's something uh, during the course of my administration that I had to uh, uh, draw the line in the sand very clearly uh, that, that our relationship with China must be that and nothing more. But in the course of our uh, engagements with China, they've tried to uh, always push them and follow up to make it strategic. <clears throat> and so uh, when we uh, discuss things, they, they always uh, uh, go out to do press releases to uh, include in their press releases uh, a strategic relationship uh, to be mm -hmm. part of it. It's something which I instructed our government not to ever sign uh, with China any kind of uh, agreement uh, with financial uh, or development assistance that will have that language uh, embedded in, in the, these types of agreements. And so uh, there are many things that I can uh, uh, share here, uh, including uh, moratorium on the research vessels that I also mm -hmm. stopped uh, from entering our exclusive economic zone. Uh, so some of those are laid out in, in the uh, letters that we, uh, you, you've read. And I think uh, those are examples of uh, what I see as uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, influence mm -hmm. that uh, they're trying to do in the Federated States of Micronesia. Sure. I think one of the things you raised is the enormous pressure that Beijing is bringing to bear on countries, not just in the Pacific, but also around the world. Uh, who are seeking to strengthen informal and trade ties with Taiwan without a formal recognition switch. Um, it was a, a key topic of interest when uh, a few of us from FDD had a chance to travel to Taipei this summer and meet with President Tsai Ing-wen and, and her cabinet to talk about creative ways that we could strengthen these informal and trade relationships while recognizing uh, that China does not maybe get a veto, but they certainly get a vote. Uh, Cleo, I'm sort of interested about whether you're hearing similar sort of stories as you go and travel across the region and meet with other leaders and officials on the ground about what that pressure looks like specifically over Taiwan and how countries in the region are sort of navigating this very complex landscape where I think many feel a little torn or a little trapped perhaps uh, between these competing pressures. So in the, in the three U.S. freely associated states, two recognize Taiwan. Uh, Palau and Marshall Islands. Um, Federated States of Micronesia is, is with China, as mentioned, it's in the middle. And so what President uh, Panuelo had proposed uh, potentially would have created an incredible solid band across. Um, the fact that he, he wasn't supported, I mean, if, mistake, did you get any support from anybody for your move? Well, you know, you've asked the United States, and I understand that uh, knowing that we're a sovereign nation, uh, we did not hear any noise about, you know, our warming up with, uh, with Taiwan. And that was uh, something that I uh, expected, mm -hmm. you know, from the United States. Uh, but from within our country, 
I think, you know, one of the things that I'd like to talk about is that, that the kind of uh, uh, feeling by, by leaders, and I think that's true across the, the Pacific nations, that our relationship with uh, China is like uh, walking on eggshells, that you, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to be very, very hopefully cautious to uh, kind of uh, go, go beyond a, a certain uh, a way when you're dealing with the with China, mm -hmm. you know, human rights can be one of the issues. Our uh, country recently, in late October, uh, abstained from uh, the resolution on the issue of uh, uh, human rights issue. And you can see that uh, China is constantly, uh, you know, uh, talking to nations in the Pacific to make sure that they do the right thing in their terms by not uh, not voting on uh, similar resolutions mm -hmm. like that. And examples can be uh, very many, you know, throughout, uh, you know, I, I remember going to a embassy reception with the Japan embassy with the celebration of the emperor's uh, birthday, as they normally do every year, and how the Chinese ambassador will come to me and constantly as I arrive, be whispering in my ear and be walking with me as I go to be careful when I visit uh, Palau, <clears throat> because I could be influenced with uh, with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. They're very sensitive with those things, and and you know it's so persistent to the point that I had to stop and do something rude that you don't do uh, with ambassadors uh, uh, in, in the conduct of uh, diplomacy. Uh, I, I you know my career is a foreign service. Uh, prior to my becoming a member of Congress and, uh, you know, ninth president of our country. So it's to the point where it was so persistent that I had to do something rude by saying, Ambassador, don't ever do that to me ever again, because we are a sovereign nation. And when you tell me once, that is already enough, uh, you know, uh, rather than when I sit down, he sits down with me constantly repeating that. <laughs> I say, stand up to go in the line to get the drink, and it's like that. But I'm, I'm giving you these examples, and mm -hmm. uh, Richard has uh, portrayed some of them when they try to do uh, approval of the uh, vaccine, when we already says that, uh, you know, the United States has already given us more than enough. Uh, when I say no, it's so persistent. It's like no is no. Uh, and so to the point where I had to uh, say, Yes, but only for your citizens who are residing in the Federated States of Micronesia. But when they take their press release, it's just, uh, you know, it's a whole out yes for, uh, for their vaccine, uh, uh, even though we got enough from CDC. Uh, those kind of uh, uh, types of, uh, you know, uh, persistent uh, movements. And, uh, and uh, Richard has touched some of these things where I even uh, uh, looked at uh, uh, you know, working with Congress to give the term limits with our diplomats, especially who are based in Beijing, uh, uh, because as we review things that are coming from, from China, uh, we have to be extra cautious with what our own diplomats are doing, because it's still as they're walking and talking, uh, uh, you know, talking points of, uh, of China. And you can see that as president, <clears throat> uh, working on these type of things, whether it's a proposed uh, trade uh, agreement, uh, with China or, uh, you know, blue economy agreement that mm -hmm. I've already uh, said no to, they would work with cabinets to uh, uh, really try to uh, have them sign such a thing. So you can see that persistence, including uh, when I say no to a, a, a meeting because the Pacific Island leaders are occupied with a meeting, including cabinet, they would pull out a, 
private citizen to put them on the uh, uh, virtual meeting and call it the uh, government uh, meeting with the, uh, with the PRC and the Pacific Island nations. So you see those examples as very uh, uh, persistent. And so, uh, therefore, the letters uh, uh, had to be uh, done to warn our, our leaders for these types of activities uh, by, by China. Just to, yeah, just to, and, and just to see how it's, uh, how the other two, the two countries, Palau and Marshall Islands, are, are experiencing this. Uh, Taiwan isn't, isn't just a country, right? If, if you have, if, Taiwan, if you recognize Taiwan, that means you don't have a Chinese embassy in your country, and the Chinese embassies function like forward operating bases for their intelligence community and their influence operations and that sort of thing. So not having a Chinese embassy gives you this layer of protection, um, which is why the Chinese are working very hard to get the other two countries to de-recognize Taiwan. Well, Marshall Islands just had an election. Uh, we'll get the results within the next week or so. Um, but we know that there's been a lot of Chinese money to try to flip them. And this gets back to this, this issue of what the US can do. The Chinese, two, two Chinese um, nationals got Marshallese citizenship some way or another and tried to set up a country within a country by bribing, and I can say that legally because they were found guilty in a, in a New York court, uh, people in the Marshallese government. Mm. Um, and it was overtly a Hong Kong type system, what they wanted to set up, this kind of enclave um, in a country where there's a critical uh, US military base and that recognizes Taiwan. The US prosecuted them, found them guilty, and then deported one of them back to the Marshall Islands mm. without giving the case files to the Attorney General of the Marshall Islands so that he could prosecute them and the people who they bribed before the, and it happened right before the election. So those sort of gaps in US engagement with the FAS and helping them protect themselves on the political warfare front are critical. And if that woman continued her operations as it was before, and successfully managed to influence the outcome of the election, you may see a situation where Marshall's derecognizes Taiwan. And Palau has an election coming up next year mm -hmm. also. And you can see with po the possibility within a year, all three of the FAS becoming, uh, having Chinese embassies in them. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, uh, it, the situation is, is critical. Yeah. Uh, There's this, this sophisticated war of attrition, right? The Chinese perceive that time is on their side, and that by exploiting democratic governance in each of these countries, eventually, with enough time, pressure, influence, they can achieve that desired political objective. And it's in the Pacific, and it's in Latin America. Um, and when you talk to and sort of reflect upon what the Chinese are saying amongst themselves, there's a, there's a sense of confidence there. It does sort of necess uh, necessitate us to think through alternative means to strengthen ties to Taiwan, whether it's through free trade agreements, whether it's through people-to-people -people connections, uh, whether it's through uh, even just meeting with and engaging with Taiwanese officials. But I think you raise a great point in that it, talking just about the headache is usually insufficient. Here, we, we at FDD sort of have a motto, uh, if you're going to come to us with the headache, you need to bring the aspirin also. <laughs> um, because just coming to policymakers with the problem and not coming with the solution, I think uh, we often find um, can result in a lot of frustration. Uh, and so we're hearing about all the myriad problems and challenges. And so I'm sort of interested to get 
uh, both of your takes on just are there specific measures beyond COFA renewal that you think the United States and its partners can and should take to help counter some of this malign influence, uh, all aspects of malign influence, and to do so in a way that perhaps um, doesn't draw such severe ire from Beijing, because we have to, I think, be cognizant of some of those equities as well. Start with you, Mr. President, perhaps, and then Cleo. Well, yeah, you know, the, one of the one of the mechanisms which I thought was very important in decision making was the establishment of the information and uh, mm -hmm. you know intelligence uh, bureau, which I established by uh, executive order, mm -hmm. uh, because capacity for information and in intelligence for the Pacific Island nations, of course, it's limited. Uh, what we uh, know in terms of what's happening can be augmented with uh, more intelligence by trusted partners. And so uh, that's, to me, it's very important. And I began by already talking to uh, some members of our Congress that the long-term view was to mm -hmm. introduce a, a uh, legislation to create a national uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, security uh, you know, mechanism uh, council or uh, you know, by law that mm -hmm. can exist for a uh, long term. Uh, so continuity is important. Engagement with the, you know, with the allies who share the same values uh, is, is very important. Uh, you know, in the context of the region, because security uh, uh, is also beyond uh, just uh, the nations alone, mm -hmm. sovereign nations. Uh, uh, Pacific Islands Forum is another uh, way of working with the Pacific Island nations to put in the guardrails of. Uh, things that impacts uh, the Pacific overall right. and working together so that, you know, what needs to be discussed between the family of uh, nations of the Pacific mm -hmm. needs to be brought uh, forward, as in the case where I had to write uh, uh, Prime Minister Sokovara when, uh, uh, when uh, they signed the security agreement with, uh, with uh, China, uh, concerns of escalating uh, geopolitics uh, in the region. I, I directly pointed to a prime minister who's a, who's a good friend, and, and it necessitated them to come to the, to the family of the Pacific Island Forum when we discuss security to uh, have him also share his views, his views mm -hmm. and that's where he uh, assured us, uh, the Pacific Island uh, leaders, that uh, there will be no militarization of uh, China in uh, Solomon Islands. So I think overall uh, vigilance between uh, you know nations and the uh, leadership cooperation is a, is a, is a mm -hmm. very important thing to to be paying attention to these mm -hmm. uh, things. So that's my take. But uh, Cleo, uh, so currently there's there's no downside to taking Chinese money, right? right? You don't you don't lose the money, you don't lose your assets, you don't lose your political position, you don't end up in jail. Um, so um, that distorts the, in, the entire political and economic landscape. So unless there starts to be a cost, unless you can, you, you know, then the cost-benefit analysis goes against uh, uh, freedom, democracy, accountability, rule of law, and the whole system starts to get corrupted, which goes to your point, if they're going after democracy, right? right? So even in, the, in, in Solomon Islands, you know, what we saw was... Um, a lot of the money, the Chinese money that went to corrupt that system, that Solomon Islands system, gets laundered through Australian banks, New Zealand banks, Australian real estates. The Australians could shut it down very quickly just by doing what they're supposed to do legally, yeah. domestically, by going after 
those kinds of assets. It's what the U.S. did on the Ronglap issue that I just mentioned in the, in the Marshall Islands. But they didn't follow it up with being able to prosecute the uh, Marshallese domestically. So now you've got Marshallese who may be getting elected into the next parliament, who have taken the Chinese money, who are concerned that uh, the U.S. Uh, could come after them, and that pulls them even closer to China if you don't do it properly. The U.S. has uh, you know, put in place a policy in Bangladesh about concern over election integrity, but they haven't done it in the Solomon Islands where they've already postponed elections. Mm -hmm. So there are all these mechanisms where you kind of can try to increase the cost. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned, just in terms of how important this is strategically, uh, you mentioned Latin America. The Pacific Island, control on the Pacific Islands is essential for China to get to Latin America. This isn't just an Indo-Pacific going down through the old, that map story, it's also getting across. So the, um, the value of control in the Pacific Islands to China can't be underestimated. They're playing very hard. And they've got uh, many of these elements, but they ride in on money and criminal behavior. So that's the weak point. That's where you go after it. That's where you can mm -hmm. cut off um, that oxygen that's feeding this political warfare and give the locals who are fighting for their countries a chance to compete on a level playing field with democracy, transparency, accountability, and rule of law. Absolutely. No, I, I like that you both mentioned the, the need for vigilance, obviously, but you have to match that with capability. One thing that we've talked about here, and there's always a need sometimes, and they sound like nuts and bolts and sort of boring and almost bureaucratic speak, but trusted means of communicating in the region is such a key factor. China's ability to weaponize infrastructure and telecommunications networks uh, sort of prevents even leaders and officials on island to have secure communications about security threats, let alone communicate with partners in the region about what they're seeing. And I think one of the key lessons I've learned from Clio's research and is, is you typically see something very similar happening in one country that's occurring in the other. And currently there's, there's very little connective tissue uh, allowing countries and leaders to securely exchange that information, particularly on the money laundering front, which I think you're totally right, underpins so much of this criminal architecture that they're building there. I wonder whether you have any thoughts on some, and it sounds so silly, but some specific ideas that could help strengthen some of that, those trusted partnerships. I mentioned that because the former Trump administration took this head on and they said, the key factor is trust. And I couldn't agree more with this idea. Uh, Ambassador Curry is actually here. She, she helped spearhead that effort. All about trusted networks and partnerships, and it's beyond Huawei. Mm -hmm. Is there something more that needs to be done in that space? We think through the COFA renewal today, it's the near-term target. This is going to require constant investment and vigilance. I'm sort of interested to hear whether we, us, should be thinking about other investments, as mundane as they perhaps sound, on building out some of the secure architecture so that leaders can actually make decisions on their own in an informed way. Well, one of the examples of the East Micronesia cable, if mm -hmm. I may touch that, because that is something that happened during my administration. And I uh, clearly recall how a, a World Bank funded uh, uh, laying of the fiber optic can run into issues mm -hmm. that compromise uh, security, even though the, the uh, mechanisms of the World Bank was really targeted to implement infrastructure 
but you know, in the competition of implementation of these major uh, communications infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, we ran into an issue where where a Chinese company severely underbidded the other competitors under that program uh, to the point where uh, security concerns were raised and then it was discussed because mm -hmm. of the uh, Title III uh, element of the compact that allows uh, FSM and U.S. to discuss these issues very uh, openly. And, and that led to the three allies to uh, work with the Pacific nations of the FSM, uh, Nauru and Kiribati, to uh, uh, totally fund, separate from the World Bank fund, to uh, uh, connect the remaining state in our nation, which is uh, Koshai, to be connected to the fiber optics. These are very costly yeah. infrastructure. And uh, today, I thank those three countries for working with the three Pacific nations, which connected and uh, uh, it uh, provided the outlay. And I think contracts have been signed and implementation may be happening as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, to connect Koshai, Nauru, and, uh, and Kiribati. So those are the bigger picture types of uh, uh, cooperation that we can look at. But I'm sure uh, many areas that uh, can be worked on uh, uh, is still out there that mm -hmm. can be uh, addressed. Uh, and uh, Cleo may have some of that, uh, these ideas to share. Uh, so uh, the, the president has brought up a really important point about um, how some elements of what we had thought of as the BRI are migrating into multilateral mm -hmm. yep. institutions. So uh, you're seeing a lot of the projects in the Pacific, ADB projects and World Bank projects, being won by China. Yep. So essentially, we are um, subsidizing the BRI outbuild and giving it a veneer of legitimacy through these uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. um, that has to stop. <laughs> you know, we need to figure, we need to, uh, figure out how to stop it. Um, in terms of the, the other things that, that you're talking about uh, and how to, how to build it up from the inside in terms of trust, it's, it's helpful to look at the, the Chinese way of looking at things in terms of unrestricted warfare. Uh, and of course, the three, I mean, there are 24 as per the book, but the three main warfares, which is lawfare, mm -hmm. uh, media, and psychological. And if you look at a place like uh, Federated States of Micronesia, you can see all of that playing out. You can see um, the, the breakdown of uh, the rule of law. There was recently a situation where a duly elected senator has not been given her seat. Um, and the questions are why? And uh, the concern is that it's because she's honest. Mm -hmm. And so they're using sort of uh, legislative mechanisms to try to delay that situation. Um, in terms of the media, the main editor of the main newspaper in uh, FSM just went on a trip to China, along with media from across the region. And you'll start to see very positive coverage about China all across the region. And in terms of psychological warfare, the idea that China is the inevitable partner, China is on the rise, US is in decline, is very much in play. Sure. So now that we know kind of how they target, we know where to counter. So you need to clean up the legal system, you need to support an independent media, and you need to show that you're there, that China is a murderous, authoritarian, evil system. The Chinese Communist Party is uh, kills its own people. Um, it's a bad place. It's not a system that you want to see metastasize into other locations, which is ultimately the goal. And get out the message, because fundamentally, 
you know, the, the democracy that is in FSM is a better system than the Chinese Communist Party system. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and which is also, if I, if I just may, because I've heard you speak about this before, it's often described as this being a, a conflict between China and the US. But that's not why you took the positions you took, right? Why, why did you um, do, make the stands you did in regards to China? It's a culmination of, of issues that prompted me to take the position that I, uh, I took as a president of the, the nation. Uh, you know, uh, the system of democracy is something that we treasure, U.S. being the champion of democracy. Uh, I see that, you know, the values that we uh, see as important, we need to make sure that those are preserved. The rules-based international order is uh, very important. And, you know, the competition of the uh, bigger influences in the Pacific is, is happening, and that's expected. The hegemonic uh, competition is uh, something we expect. Uh, when the Pacific Island nations uh, come together, we make it clear uh, to, to China and uh, others that we're not so much interested in the superpower competition of these uh, two big inf uh, you know, uh, nations, but to look at the, the very serious issues that we're concerned about. <laughs> We've always talked about climate change and invite uh, you know, China and the US to uh, champion this cause, as this is an existential threat for the entire uh, Pacific uh, nations. And, and you know, uh, on, on that level, it's important. And, and to me, it's doing the right thing. Uh, in our nation uh, without being afraid of any repercussions because we're there to protect our nation, to protect our sovereignty and, uh, you know, first and foremost, to do what is in the best interest of our uh, citizens as we look to the future. And so uh, I've uh, had quite a few experiences that I had to uh, take uh, in a bold manner, uh, never mind uh, whether I'd be uh, unpopular about it. But I think the, the, you know, the most uh, surprising to me was after I've written uh, the letters, uh, I, I felt that uh, that would be easily supported by our leadership across the board. But then uh, it's, it's quite a, a, a deafening silence uh, when, I, when I, I wrote those things. And I, I was telling myself, uh, you know, what is happening? Am I the only one seeing these things in our, in our nation? Uh, so that was the thing where it alarmed me the most. So I, I did get a letter. I got a letter from one of our governors from the state of Yap who expressed uh, concerns and thanked me for the uh, warning that I, I uh, wrote to the leaders across uh, our nation. Uh, and that's quite alarming to me. I felt alone in, in what I was uh, feeling about uh, China. Uh, because I thought that everybody was seeing all of these things. But if you, uh, uh, you know, would like not to see it, maybe you're not going to see it. Or if you don't care about it, uh, y you may not see it. But a lot of these things are happening. <clears throat> I know uh, in the U.S. system bureaucracy, and similarly with ours, uh, we have to be accountable with the money that we receive because it has to fit through the bureaucracy to uh, comply with financial management regulations. Uh, but in the system of the authoritarian governments, when uh, you seek assistance from uh, China, 
from a certain uh, politician to satisfy his constituents. Uh, it could be the next day when a check is written and you pick it up and then go out and implement your part project. So I started out by saying the feasible uh, infrastructure that uh, is out there built by China, uh, the road infrastructure when I was seeking pave the nation. Uh, China was quick in coming up with the uh, uh, assistance to give our states to help with the implementation of the uh, uh, road infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, COVID has delayed some of that. So, uh, you know, post-COVID, you see that these things are being implemented. Uh, but uh, uh, these are the competition that's happening. And so delaying the comeback would severely impact what we see U.S. being the uh, major player in our region, especially in the freely associated states. Uh, implementation takes very long. Uh, but when, when China comes in with their development assistance, it can be done as quickly as uh, uh, they can do it uh, within the system that they have, which is uh, uh, faster to deploy the resources to help implement uh, these projects. So uh, looking at it, I think uh, U.S. can see it very clearly. Other uh, developing nations can see it uh, very clearly. Uh, and so the question is a very big one. Who's winning? Uh, the competition of influence uh, via the way uh, they are implementing uh, major infrastructure projects uh, throughout uh, you know, the Micronesian uh, freely associated states and uh, in the bigger uh, Pacific uh, region. No, well, thank you so much for your insight. Uh, I know that sometimes you can, it can feel as if you're alone. You're certainly not, uh, not with, I think, support from uh, friends here in Washington or this packed room, which I want to turn over to Q&A for folks here. Um, I think uh, we are eager to sort of hear additional sure. insights that you have. But with that, I'll turn it over to Q&A. And to anyone in the audience, please raise your hand, and we'll get you a mic for a question. Um, Cleo's like a one-man. Uh, Shop. I mean, she's a machine. A machine. Yeah, she's a machine. And uh, uh, I, you know, you made a great point. When somebody has, a, when they're sick, when they have a headache, you come with an aspirin, and that's what uh, we used to tell people who came to us on the hill, like the Bangladeshis or the Indians, mm -hmm. before they were lobbyists. You know, um, they, go get yourself a lobbyist, or go hire a young Indian with a master's degree or a awesome. law degree or something, um, and then come back. Um, but the resources are so small for these islands, they can't afford that. Yeah. Um, you have Cleo, and she's, I don't know where she's getting her you know, resources, but we need more people <laughs> like her. So, Individual I, donors to the FDD. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to point that out. Somehow or another, we've got to fill that. Yeah. If it wasn't for her, we wouldn't um, know so much about what's going on there. So. Mm. Um, but they don't have the resources, and somehow we've got to fill that. Whether Heritage put somebody on board, like you guys put her on board, or um, so I don't know if that's a question or, um, or suggestion. But uh, I, ho I hope you can look into that with uh, some of your compatriots at the other uh, think tanks. Yeah, it's a top priority for us. I, I think I'd like to flip it around a little bit to you, Mr. President, because mm -hmm. this. The stories that need to be told on the ground, and I agree completely, aren't told enough. Mm -hmm. So what, what, and COVID I think did derail and sort of hinder a lot 
of traditional travel and people-to-people -people connection um, because it was a really trying time. We're, we're on the other side of it mm -hmm. today, I would like to think. What are some other ways that we can do what I think the questioner is describing is to increase the knowledge base, not just in Washington, but perhaps across the United States about the importance of Micronesia, about the COFA, uh, and what life is like uh, in the Pacific Islands, especially as it relates to changes like climate change, where I think is just a key area where the United States needs to step up to assist uh, Pacific Island leaders in addressing some, some of those changes as well. It's hard to think about it because I thought, I thought it's out there already. You know, every meeting on the major issues that we've been having is being covered in some form or another. I mean, uh, media coverage in our country is limited. We're talking about only one uh, free me media entity that exists in the, uh, in the FSM. Uh, other meetings have been known in the Pacific, uh, whether it's climate change through the Pacific Islands Forum, when we go out to the conference of parties, for example, to raise this issue, it's uh, known, uh, whether it's at the uh, United Nations. So the bigger issues are pretty much uh, governed, but what I see that's not being uh, uh, propagated enough is uh, issues like what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. uh, the influence of China uh, in, in the Pacific. Maybe it gets a story or two when it's out there. I, I came out here, the uh, meetings I, ha I just ha had with friends here, I think they're asking the same question. How can we do more to get the coverage uh, much uh, uh, known throughout uh, in the leadership? And so I appreciated my uh, meeting with the Epoch Times. Uh, you know, I think that can, <laughs> can help with the story. I felt like it's a conversation. Uh, I'm trying to be as frank and candid as possible in terms of the insight I have during the presidency with these experiences. And so maybe the question will be flipped back to you with countries that uh, got more of the capacity to help, uh, uh, you know, these issues to be, uh, you know, known more throughout. Competition of uh, priorities is very uh, uh, tough right now in this uh, day and age. And so maybe I'll flip, flip it back to have uh, you uh, give us your perspective on uh, how, how these things can. Well, so other than cloning Clea, which <laughs> we've explored, but is impossible. Um, Clea, I'm sort of interested to hear your thoughts. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, this is all very uh, kind and generous, and I hope my parents are very proud for once. But um, the, uh, there are great people in this room that mm -hmm. are doing this in their own uh, organizations, and there's yes. a lot more media interest. Uh, we've got... Yeah, Jessica Stone from Voice of America. We have Kushbu from yes. uh, South China Morning Post. We have the, the interest is growing, mm -hmm. um, but personally, I think the problem has been uh, specifically for the for the freely associated states mm -hmm. that they've been lumped in with the Pacific right. Islands. Right. Totally. Right. And the, the freely associated states are completely different. Yep. They have a totally different arrangement with the U.S. Um, uh, you know, their, their uh, importance and integration is different. There are, there are voting blocks in places like Arkansas that are, that are made up of, uh, uh, Marshall Lee, I think you were in Oregon, right? There's a big voting block in Oregon. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the relationship is different, and it's a structural issue. I know that there's, um, in, in the um, new arrangement, there's the thought of setting up a, kind of a, like they used to have a freely associated state unit, maybe mm -hmm. within state, 
uh, to take that out of this whole Pacific Island thing because the issue has been, and we hear it a lot in the rhetoric, um, uh, Dr. Campbell would, would talk about it often, about relying on Australia and New Zealand to inform the Pacific Island policy and then sure. through the Pacific Island Forum, which means that the U.S. Uh, state, in some cases, has been looking at the region from the bottom up through other people's eyes. Right. Um, and it's really um, put blinders on when it comes to the, the FAS. So understanding that the FAS are not just more Pacific Islands, they are different. Um, and we, and it's been great that we've been getting some coverage here, but these should be, we should be, we should have reporters here from the defense sector, from, right. uh, you know, all of those other sectors that don't even know they rely on this relationship to be able to deploy to Japan mm -hmm. or to be able to reinforce Guam or things sure. like that. No, totally agree. I mean, like the U.S. obviously has to show up here. You have media as a huge component and constituency, obviously, um, members of the executive branch, legislative branch, and academia too. We have representatives here from Georgetown and Texas A&M where I got a degree, go Aggies. Uh, I think so much more needs to be done in the academic space because we have obviously for the last 20 years been very focused on counterterrorism mission. We have this return to great power competition. I think we've lost a little bit of muscle memory, to be honest, about how to wage great power competition. And there is, are reams of great reporting and great information about the Pacific in particular that I think by re-educating this next generation of students and scholars who are going to be looking at the region at great power competition with China, you are really in a position uh, to, I think, build out this ecosystem that can grow over time and generationally sort of address these issues. I think that's just so critical to me in building up those academic linkages and partnerships, uh, both for students in FSM to come to the United States, but sort of a two-way exchange. With that, we're, we're at the end of our remarks here. I know the president is uh, going to be sitting around uh, a little bit uh, before he moves on to some other very important meetings, so there might be an opportunity to chat with him after. But we wanted to thank you all for coming today um, and for the president for taking uh, so much of his time to speak thank with you, us. Um, for more information about FDD, uh, I encourage you to look at fdd.org, and thank you so much for being here today.